Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This government has to admit it's made a fundamental mistake, or we could be in and out of this national shutdown, because even if it's lifted, it would be re- reimposed again on a whim. We could be in and out of it for many months. And, and the damage done both to our society and our economy, to the health of the, of, of the currently healthy old, uh, to our ability to recover from the enormous economic crash, which is now taking place virtually unreported in the world, will be gravely damaged. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. This episode is a little different to the normal ones because it is the first one I am recording from the COVID-19 lockdown. There will no doubt be many more lockdown pods in the coming weeks. And I'm very happy that my first guest in this coronavirus era is someone who shares my scepticism of the lockdown and shares my concern that our cure to COVID-19 might prove to be more destructive than the virus itself. That is Peter Hitchens. Peter is a columnist for The Mail on Sunday and author of numerous books, including most recently The Phony Victory, The World War II Illusion. Peter has received a lot of flack over the past couple of weeks for arguing that our response to COVID-19 has been completely disproportionate. Peter, welcome to the show. So, Peter, we live in a country right now where Parliament has been suspended, our most basic freedoms have been eroded, we're all virtually under house arrest apart from strict reasons for going outside, There's a whole bunch of new rituals we all have to observe when we encounter other people, which is increasingly rare. Like me, are you a bit terrified by the speed and the ease with which Britain became this country? I wouldn't say terrified, uh, distressed and uh, and, and grieved, but not terrified and actually not shocked. Because in, in several controversies in recent years where I've sort of thought that the people of this country would stand against the way in which they were being bullied and messed around. I've noticed there hasn't been all that much spirit of liberty abroad. I think there's there's an awful lot of conformism now exists in this country, and people are prepared to accept being pushed around. I'm not sure Parliament's been suspended exactly. It's it's just folded up or or, or dissolved into into a pool of blancmange. It could, if it insisted, I think, and if it had any kind of leadership, it could insist on continuing to sit, just as it could have opposed uh, the action or indeed subjected it to anything remotely resembling scrutiny. But it just folded up and, and stole away in the night. And all the institutions of civil society, which are supposed to protect us, did the same thing. Yeah. And not a single one, not the, the, the judiciary, the, the, the human rights lot, the civil service, the media, parliament, the, Her Majesty's opposition, and public opinion in general simply failed to do their jobs. Mm. And we demonstrated, in fact, that we don't really have a civil society any longer. And what shocked me, having 
spent such a long time in the old Soviet Union. Of course, in the Soviet Union, it was clear that there was only one official point of view and that people were indeed being pushed around in, in, in many ways. So I don't recall them ever being compelled to stay at home. Uh, and that there was a, at least a pretense made of having a, a legislative body as well. But the, the point that, that, that strikes me here is that under the Soviets' rule, particularly in the Eastern European countries, but also in, largely in Russia, most people regarded it with a certain amount of contempt and made jokes about it and realized that they were, they were, being, they, they, they were being mocked and fooled. In this case, the population accepts what they're being told Without any question, and it's extraordinary. The, the the old USSR would love to have had a population like the current population of the Western world, mm. and the current population of the United Kingdom, which which actually genuinely believes propaganda and does what it's told. Mm. You know, they say oh, the chocolate ration has, has, has gone up when in fact it's gone down. They'll believe it. So I, I want to come back in a moment to that question of conformism and particularly intellectual conformism, which I think is quite alarming, deeply alarming. But firstly, I want to j- just. To go over the basics, you have written some very solid pieces questioning the need for this kind of shutdown. So we can come on in a moment to the question of why it's been so broadly accepted and, and why there is so, so little criticism. But let's just talk for a moment about the extraordinary situation we find ourselves in where there is this novel new virus, which undoubtedly potentially causes great harm, especially to older people and medically vulnerable people. And in response to it, which is unprecedented in human history, we have closed down virtually the whole of society and most of the economy, and in the process stored up immeasurable problems for the future. And I think you have found it a bit of a struggle to convince people that this might not be the best way to tackle a virus. Well, it's extraordinary, again, the willingness of people to accept something must be done, this is something, so we'll do this. The argument is, we have a problem. The way of solving it is to shut down the country and strangle civil liberty. Therefore, let's do that. Uh, what I've been surprised by is how little examination has been and whether, whether there's any logic to this. And I, it's, it's, it is as if you went to the doctor with measles and the doctor said, well, this is very serious measles. Uh, the only treatment for it is to cut off your left leg. And he cuts off your left leg and then later on you recover from the measles and he says, fantastic, I've cured you of the measles. Sorry about your leg. Uh, but that is more or less what is going on now. We are being offered a, a supposed treatment which has nothing, whatever, to do with the problem. Other countries have not resorted to these measures. We've modelled ourselves bizarrely on the most despotic country in the world, the People's Republic of China, whose statistics are wholly unreliable and whose media are totally supine. Uh, so we can't really know what's going on. And if you look, in fact, at the all the countries which have had uh, more or less serious outbreaks of COVID-19, they've almost all reacted differently. Even Singapore and Hong Kong, which are widely praised for what they did, uh, did different things. And yet, oddly enough, the results in Singapore and Hong Kong were quite similar. Japan has done something different. Uh, South Korea did something different. Uh, and again, the, the virus uh, actually did not continue to grow at the rates uh, which Imperial College apparently think will, are inevitable if we don't shut down our society. And it, it, there doesn't, as I say, seem to be any, even if, if you went for the, the post hoc, ergo propter hoc fallacy that because A happened, B ha- and B happened after it, B happened because of A. There isn't even a basis for that, let alone anything remotely resembling research showing a causal relationship between a Chinese-type shutdown uh, and, and, and the defeat of the disease. There are rational responses to this. And of course, it seems to be the crucial test of any policy, and indeed of almost any human action, 
is not absolute right or absolute wrong. Very, very rarely it arises in practical life. It's proportionality. Is the action in proportion to the problem? And you look at the past and the problems which this country and its medical system has almost every winter, for instance, with influenza and the complications of it, are considerable. I think in one year recently, 38,000 people died of influenza because the vaccines didn't work and it was a particularly virulent strain. The average number who die of influenza every year is, I think, 17,000 in England alone. And this does not cause the country to be shut down. It's doubtless tragic for all those involved. But you can't use emotionalism Mm. to justify a policy, especially when that policy actually means... And I I have to to, quote here from Jonathan Sumption's interview in The World at One on on Monday because it, it simply hasn't been stressed enough in the coverage of what he said. They've gone on about what he said about the police, which was a marginal part of what he said. His his key part was this. The real question is, is this serious enough to warrant putting most of our population into house imprisonment, wrecking our economy for an indefinite period, destroying businesses that honest and hardworking people have taken years to build up, saddling future generations with debt, depression, stress, heart attacks, suicides, and unbelievable distress inflicted on millions of people who are not especially vulnerable and will suffer only mild mild symptoms or none at all. Uh, Actually, that's exactly what I think. But I'm not a former Supreme Court judge. I'm not one of Britain's most distinguished lawyers. I'm not one of Britain's most distinguished historians. I'm not the deliverer of last year's Reith Lecture. So I I can say, here it is. This is a, a perfectly valid sentiment expressed by somebody of considerable authority and wisdom. And it isn't even reported by the media when he says it. Yeah. They leave it out of the reports of what he says because no one's prepared to confront this. There's the, the omatar, the, the total supine consensus over this matter. The complete failure to debate it is, is astonishing to me. And it's the lack of proportion that he's, that he's stressing there. Even if this were an effective policy, could it possibly be justified given the disastrous results? As I say, if, if you had a, a disease from which you might or might not recover and you were offered the amputation of all four of your limbs and perhaps your head and, and asked to sign a consent form, you'd probably say no, even if it would cure you. Mm. Because you'd recognize that the cure was worse than the disease, a, a, a phrase which repeatedly occurs, even though Donald Trump has used it, which always puts people off anything anybody says. But it is the case. The alleged cure, and it is only alleged in this case, is immensely worse than the disease because what happens to a society uh, which trashes its economy. I will tell you what happens. It's unable to afford proper health provision. All its standards decline. Its food gets worse. Its air quality gets worse. Its housing gets worse. Its water quality gets worse. And everybody gets iller. And the other point, which I have to say is embraced by the, the extraordinary Professor Sutra Bhakti of Mainz University in Germany, an absolute genius in microbiological medicine who's utterly against these measures. He said, what about the healthy old? now deprived of all the things that make life worth living. He reckons that the, the, this shutting down of their lives will be catastrophic and almost certainly cause large numbers of deaths. So you can't just say, oh, you don't care about people dying. Uh, that's not what the argument is. I care about people dying unnecessarily as much as anybody else, and my motives are as good as anybody else's. It's just my, my motives are also driven by more intelligent thought, uh, more reason, and a better grasp of the fact. I think Sumption's intervention was very useful for a number of reasons, but one of them is what you've just touched upon there, which is this 
really poisonous accusation that has been made against anyone who criticizes the shutdown of society, which is you don't care about old people or even you want old people to die. And it's the same, it's the same as in the Iraq war. If you, if you said, actually, this war is war, oh, so you support Saddam Hussein's fascist regime, do you? You believe in that Saddam should be allowed to torture people, do you? That's the sort of person you are, are you? And that the shutting down. Uh, by, uh, by 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 spite and lies of serious debate on a, on a major matter. I, I think this this should probably be called VMD, the virus of mass destruction. Uh, it is it is so very similar mm. uh, in in the way in which it propagandizes and the way in which it tries to crush dissent. And what they do is they, they make this completely false distinction. What they say is that this is a question of lives versus the economy. And they talk about the economy as if it's just some kind of abstract machine, just numbers and money and profits, when in fact, the economy is people's lives. It's their livelihoods. It's how we create things. It's how we produce things. So Dr. John Lee in The Spectator made a very good point, which is that this is lives versus lives. And that's the kind of debate we need to be having here. That's assuming, again, that there is the, the, the fundamental premise that shutting down the country will do any good is true, which I, I, I believe is seriously in doubt. I, it, it, I'm a Christian, and we, there's this wonderful um, part of the scriptures in which we are said to live and move and have our being in God. But in a, in a material way, we live and move and have our being in the economy. If nobody is buying, if nobody is selling, if nobody is working, if nobody is serving, if nobody is being served, then there is nowhere for people to live. How do we pay for our houses and our meals? How do we raise our children? How do we support an, an education system? How do we pay doctors or build hospitals if we have... No economy. At the moment, I would reckon if, if, if we could only know the sums, we're probably throwing three or four district general hospitals into the sea or their equivalents in money every week. Well, one of the frustrating things I found is experts are raising some of these questions. You, you know this, you've quoted a lot of them, you've tried to air their views in TV discussions as well. Another one is David L. Katz from the Yale Griffin Prevention Center in the US, who wrote an excellent piece in the New York Times saying, I think the shutdown will be worse than the virus itself. And this is an, an incredibly unusual response to a virus and a potentially very destructive one. We are supposed to live in an era that respects experts and listens to experts. But actually, what's become very clear through this process is the way in which certain experts who reflect what is considered to be correct opinion will be plucked out and pushed forward, while other experts, even if they are geniuses and incredibly intelligent and have lots of experience, will just be brushed aside or ignored or played down. So it also raises lots of questions about that. We hear only of, of, of Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, and I've no doubt that Professor Neil Ferguson is extremely eminent in his field and, and wouldn't in any way contest that. But the truth is that the record of Imperial on such things as a source of advice to government is not unimpeachable. And there was a very interesting story in last Saturday's Daily Telegraph in which scientists who disagreed very much with, with Neil Ferguson aired their criticisms, particularly of, of the Imperial College uh, intervention in the foot and mouth catastrophe of 2001, which I remember personally, because my newspaper, The Mail on Sunday, sent me down to Devon, where I had to spend several really miserable days in the middle of, of cattle farms, which were tombs. They, 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 were, they were vast crematoria, huge piles of cattle burning all the time, disgusting smell in the air. And if you went to farm gates to try and interview people, you'd see farmers standing there weeping, uh, waving you away, because they couldn't bear to speak. 
And this policy was, was absolutely promoted by Imperial College. And I think most people now looking back at it would recognize that the mass slaughter of healthy cattle was probably a mistake. Mm. So mistakes can be made in these things. And yet having been made, they can be pursued over and over and over again, because people who've made mistakes will not, the bigger the mistake, the harder it is to admit, will not admit it. This government has to admit it's made a fundamental mistake, or we could be in and out of this uh, national shutdown, because even if it's lifted, it could be reimposed again on a whim. We could be in and out of it for many months. And and the damage done both to our society and our economy, to the health of the the currently healthy old, uh, to our ability to recover from the enormous economic crash, which is now taking place virtually unreported uh, in in the world, will be gravely damaged. I can't see how it can go on much longer without people beginning. There, There is not a business that I know of that is not suffering terribly from this. And people are losing, people who who are still in business Mm. are losing sales at rates unprecedented. This reminds me more of 1931, I think, than 2008 at the moment in its its effect on it. And people don't understand what a real slump does. Mm. That you end up, and I this is this is a description I read an article in the New York Times over in the USA of somebody recalling that you would find people begging at your door and they were former university professors. That's what happens in slumps. The university professors that any kind of spite against other professors now, but that was the that was the level of the disaster. People who thought they were entirely secure mm. with tenured jobs in major institutions ended up begging and, 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 and asking for work at people's back doors. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. On that very issue, because the thing that worries me most is the economic catastrophe that we are creating for ourselves through the response to COVID-19 and the reluctance to address that in any serious way among certain sections of the media class strikes me as is simply astonishing. And and in fact, what we've had in these kind of bizarre news briefings that take place every day, what we had over the past couple of weeks was the media saying all the time, lockdown, lockdown, go harder, go firmer, shut down the whole of society. Do you think there's an element where a certain strata of society simply doesn't understand the importance of work, the importance of production, that they've become so aloof from daily economic life that they think it's immaterial to prevent that stuff from happening. I mean, it may well catch up with them. They will realise soon enough. It's far be it for me to, to accuse other people of economic illiteracy. I can't claim to have any, any, any great skill at, at, the, at the dismal science. But I tell you what I have seen, and, and this is one of the great advantages of, of being a, a former foreign correspondent and somebody who's lived in foreign countries. I have seen catastrophe. I saw it in Moscow. People who had, again, previously been living reasonably happy, contented lives, knew where they lived and that it was secure, worked in jobs they believed to be secure. These people, middle-class people like me, standing by the roadside in suburban Moscow, selling off their possessions to buy bread. And the problem with catastrophe is actually that you survive it. It's not like nuclear war where everybody's dead. Economic catastrophe leaves people alive, staring into space, the ghosts of their former selves, wondering what on earth has happened. 
and I think it's the, the the extreme safety and the extreme prosperity and, and and by comparison with the rest of the world of life in advanced Western countries over the past fifty years has made it very hard for people to imagine that there is any danger. And one of the reasons why I think I'm perhaps more sensitive to these things than others is precisely because I've been out. I know it's not like that. I've seen how, how vulnerable all this is. And it, it, you've seen the opening scenes of The Third Man, the people selling their, their, their goods on the streets. Those I've seen that in real life. That happens. I've seen it. And when I've seen it in real life, I thought, can this happen to us? And I thought, yes, it could. Mm. And I, I, I've often thought, well, how, what could bring it on? Because the great credit ratings of this country managed to sustain it, despite the fact its economy is, in fact, in extremely bad shape. But... How long that can go on after this, I simply don't know. And I, I know my own home city, Oxford. I've known it for more than 50 years. I know it very well. I can't say I know every inch. But when I walk around it now, I just look at all these familiar shops and businesses and cafes and pubs that I've been using for years. How are they going to survive this? Mm. How are they going to come back? Mm. And all the stream of money that's previously sustained them, with, not, with very hard working, not particularly affluent lives, it's gone. Mm. And when it comes back, it will be at a much weaker rate. I, I was once, by a past employer, compelled to, to give up half a month's salary uh, under some scheme. And I protested against it and was eventually forced to undergo it. It was a huge blow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's half a month's salary. These people are actually going to be giving up. And, and the government, with Dr. Feelgood, Rishi Sunak, saying, oh, well, out of my magic briefcase, I produce this syringe, which I will inject you with, with energizing money. From where does it come? Mm. It, it will come from the future, and it will come from what r- remains of the savings of those who have them. It will come from heavy taxation on, on, on those who survive. I, I can't see, for instance, how on earth they're going to keep the fuel duty down after this. And it will come from, from severely reduced real wages and lowered standards of living. Yeah. Uh, all of which, as I said earlier, will be gravely damaging to the health of everybody involved. And, yeah. uh, so if you're worried about that, that's the thing you should be worrying about. And the longer it goes on, the worse it gets. Six months, we have people saying. Yeah. Six months of this. I want to talk about the uh, what seems to me like a relish for dystopia. There's almost a perverse glee some people are taking in the newly authoritarian nation we find ourselves in. And the thing that, and we touched upon this at the start of the discussion, the thing that I find, you're not particularly shocked by this, but it's it's certainly alarming, which is almost the welcoming of authoritarianism that has taken place in certain sections of society, the desire to be told what to do, the, the desire to be ruled, the desire to be instructed by a deputy chief medical officer none of us ever voted for about how long we must stay under house arrest, when we're allowed to go out, and when this might finally be eased. And my instinct, my instinct, and I'm sure other people's instinct, is to bristle at this and say, well, who the hell are you to tell us to do these things or not do those things? But we have to accept that there is a welcoming attitude to that authoritarianism among, among certain sections of society. What, what do you think dr- drives that kind of voluntary, uh, live, voluntarily living under a dictatorship? People haven't been brought up uh, to be free, I think. Uh, there's been, I, I've said for a long time, and I think I pinched some of this from Neil Postman's work on amusing ourselves to death, but I think electronic media do tend to make people more conformist. They offer an idea of, of, of life, which means there is one sense of humor. There is one point of view. There is one way to look. There's one way to talk, uh, which is very, very powerful on the young. I was brought up in a, in a country which had long ago ceased to exist, in which we were brought up to be proud to be free. Mm. 
and to be proud that our policemen were unarmed and to be proud that an Englishman's home was his castle and to, 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 to be proud that uh, nobody could arrest us for what we said. And it was genuine. My generation still felt that. But I remember this change in the teaching of history, which took place while I was still at school, the, the taking away of all the old history books with the stories about the glorious revolution and, uh, and, and, and the, the petition of right, all the rest of it, and being replaced by modern ones. And I fortunately had already absorbed the message of the old before the new ones came in, but most people haven't. Mm. So I think it's partly a result of, of, of the cultural revolutions which have been taking place. But I, can I again quote Lord Sumption? Because again, the, mm. the, the newspaper and the TV almost totally ignored this central part of what he says. The real problem is that when human societies lose their freedom, it's not usually because tyrants have taken it away. It's usually because people willingly surrender their freedom in return for protection against some external threat. And the threat is usually a real threat, but usually exaggerated. That's what I fear we're seeing now. The pressure on politicians has come from the public. They want action. They don't pause to ask whether the action will work. They don't ask themselves whether the cost will be worth paying. They want action anyway. And anyone who has studied history, of course, Lord Sumption is a historian, will recognize here the classic symptoms of collective hysteria. Hysteria is infectious. We are working ourselves up into a lava in which we exaggerate the threat and stop asking ourselves whether the cure may be worse than the disease. And I think that's an absolutely correct analysis. It, it is hysteria. And people who've looked at the history of other countries and wondered how it is that those crowds surge into the street to applaud those appalling people. Now you know. This is how it happens. People want, you know, people want to love Big Brother. In relation to the question of applause, I wanted to ask you what you thought of the NHS applause, because I think it, I, I find myself in a position where, of course, I have great admiration for people who are working in the health service and are currently working incredibly hard, including, you know, all the final year nurses who have been drafted in to help in these newly built hospitals and so on. So that's all very good. But I felt that the kind of almost uh, compulsory love. Uh, you know, we used, it used to be two minutes hate, now it's two minutes love that we must demonstrate to the NHS from the balconies of our flats or the front doors of our houses does seem to tap into that kind of Soviet-style uh, climate that has descended on the country over the past few weeks. It has an atmosphere. It reminds me also, again, of my boarding school years when compulsory jollity, being told when you're supposed to be happy and was sometimes enforced. And I, I then rediscovered this when I went on my trips around the old Warsaw Pact countries. And I thought, no, I don't like this very much. It's not enforced in the way that it was there. If mm. you didn't get the job that you wanted your children to get to university, if you didn't go out on the compulsory demonstrations, if you didn't put the little red flags on your balcony. So it's not, let's not exaggerate, but there's something creepy about it to me. If you want to applaud the NHS, please go out and do it. But whatever you do, don't get angry or spiteful towards any who say, well, actually, much as I admire people who train for many years uh, to be doctors and nurses and who go into places where they risk serious infection and even death on our behalf, much as I admire them, I don't wish to go and applaud an organization uh, of which I have, in fact, many criticisms, one of which I have to say is that it's extremely inefficient mm. at supplying its staff with the personal protection equipment, which would make them safe while they were doing this. Yeah. And this is a shocking scandal, uh, which everybody should agree needs to be resolved as quickly as possible, and which will not be resolved by shutting down the country. Yeah. On the contrary, a company that shuts itself down will be less able to afford good personal protection equipment for its doctors in the future. On the lack of love for freedom, which I think is is one of the most worrying things that's coming through in this process, do you think there is some hope in the kind of 
There have been a few flashpoints over the past week or so, particularly with what people view as excessive policing, like Derbyshire police filming people from the sky, roadblocks being set up, people being told not to buy Easter eggs because it's, you know, apparently it's not essential to buy those kinds of things. There is a bristling. Uh, part of me worries that the bristling is only against the most ridiculous, ludicrous examples of this rather than against the whole thing itself. But d- does that give you some a glimmer of hope that sometime in the next few weeks, people are going to start asking questions about this new nation we find ourselves in? Well, perhaps so. Uh, again, Lord Assumption's intervention has made a considerable difference, I think, and has probably softened it quite a bit until he spoke. And it was interesting that he actually wrote his initial article in the Times uh, eight days ago, and it took a, 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 nearly a week for the BBC even to notice. The Times itself buried it on page 94, actually 54, which is the same. <laughs> Uh, given that that he has spoken as he has, I think the police will probably restrain themselves. There was a period immediately after the Johnson diktat, uh, which was a diktat. I mean, the government, this is another of Lord Assumption's points, governments should not be giving direct instructions to the police. Mm. Governments pass laws, which the police then enforce without fear or favor. It's a totally different thing. It's one of the reasons why Britain is different from other countries. And this direct instruction from government to police is totally wrong and outside our traditions. And is I, I have no doubt causing great personal strain for those police officers of whom there are still some who still respect the old traditions. But it's also given an opportunity for other sorts of police officers who are naturally officious to exercise that officiousness. There were times when I thought, as I set out on a, on a walk or a bicycle ride, I thought, well, what if I am actually run in for taking too much exercise? Uh, and there is no limit to this. It's perfectly possible that someone will decide that what I'm doing is wrong and slap a fine on me. What do I do then? Do I appeal to the Bill of Rights of 1689? Uh, <laughs> and, and what will then happen, uh, which actually prevents the imposition of, of, of any penalty without due process? But mm. it, it, is, it is extraordinary that I even consider that in my and there's so there's other such officiousness. There's a lovely Riverside pub not far from where I live. Uh, which I bicycled past the other evening, and it has some tables and chairs outside on the riverbank. And to prevent people from sitting there, uh, they've stretched plastic tape over the neck. Of course, if you want to sit down in the countryside, there there still remain tree trunks and farm gates and all kinds of other things where you can do it. But this level of officiousness, I saw people going around putting skips in the entrances of car parks and beauty spots to prevent people driving today. It's extraordinary the energy which uh, mm. which a police force finds to do these things, which it didn't ever seem to be able to find in pursuing burglars or um, or, or many other uh, criminals who people were worried about before all this got underway. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And... It would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. One thing I find disturbing is the emergence very quickly of new rituals, these new rituals of public life in relation to how we are supposed to engage with each other or not engage with each other. Of course, the two-meter rule, I've seen things taped up as well. Two two blasted meters. It's six feet, six inches to you, matey. (laughs) The the mere use of this foreign bureaucratic Jacobin measurement is a a cloth here, 
Australia to to, uh, to, uh, to understand Britain. And actually, many of the people who, at whom it's directed, the older people in this country, they have to do a mental calculation to work out what two of these damn things are. Mm. I do. I mean, I, I I can do the calculation, but to me, no measure which is which is put to me in, in in metric measurements can be understood until I've made a mental arithmetic calculation to work out what it means. It's so high handed, the whole thing. I have the feeling of being increasingly in a country which has adopted a religion to which I do not belong, <laughs> and so I respect it. Uh, I, I've been known to go around supermarkets with a scarf wrapped around my hideous <laughs> face like like a bandit. Uh, to, to, so that I don't alarm people I might breathe on. <laughs> uh, I stand beautifully uh, distant in the queues outside the supermarket to be let in. Uh, I thank the, the shop store checkout staff because I think many of them genuinely believe that they are in grave danger of a hideous plague, so I think they deserve to be thanked for turning out under those circumstances. I do all these things, just as I would if I were in a country with another religion, respect its traditions, whilst inwardly thinking, this is all ludicrous. Mm. Uh, and I pray people on paths as I'm walking along, I step well away from them. And I found it's, and this is decreasing a bit, but in the initial days, even to say hello to somebody coming the other way, which is a natural thing to do on a footpath, uh, would often be greeted by a sharp turning away of the face and an angry look, as if by speaking to them, I'd actually sprayed my, my virus in their direction, especially as it was often, there was often quite a strong wind blowing. Uh, but they are. This is how it is. But I, I, I respect it because why not? Uh, be polite. It could do no possible harm uh, to respect it. But that doesn't mean that I have to inwardly believe that it makes any sense. Do you think it will take a while for Britain to recover, not from the virus, which is which is another issue entirely in a sense, but it, I think it will take a while for us to recover from this very quick transformation of the country into a pretty unpleasant, atomized place where you know the police are inundated with calls apparently from people who saw their neighbors going for a second jog or as you say even to nod your head at someone now or say hello is is treated as a kind of possible uh, you know <laughs> spread of plague it seems to me that we are creating a culture or we have consented to the creation of a culture that it could take a bit of a while to shake off once this is passed if it passes i don't think we'll ever recover from it I think it's like those terrible moments that most of us have had in life where we failed in, in some test. You never come back. Uh, the, the, that part of you is lost. And th that part of the country, the civil courage of the country, seems to me, is lost. Mm. And the government know that it is lost. And those in authority know that it is lost. I mean, I mean giving, giving way to me, for instance, to the actual closing and locking of churches so I can no longer uh, practice my own religion. Mm. It hasn't happened in this country since the days of King John. And even he allowed baptisms. Uh, well, or rather, it was the Pope who, who, who put him under an interdict. And I have to say that that interdict was widely circumvented. I'll tell you an anecdote that the small village church which I attend, the church warden went to the church authorities and said, look, there aren't very many of us in this congregation already. Uh, we don't need to take any great trouble to observe uh, social isolation. There's so few of us. Do you think we can stay open? We can guarantee to stand six feet six apart uh, during all religious ceremonies if you want. No, as I said, you've got, you've got to shut the church. You've got to shut the church. Uh, and it's, it is absurdity. Mm. And it, it's the absurdity of absurdities. And, of course, the other thing is if you, if you truly believed in your religion, then you'd see fundamentally it's an absurdity. But it, it, it's humiliating mm. to me to communicate particularly with American friends and say, this is what has happened to the country of Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights yeah. and habeas corpus. We are actually supine. 
uh, under the stern gaze of the supposedly benevolent state. And once you've done that, once you've gone under the yoke and subjected yourself to this sort of authority, there's nothing, you've lost virtue, which, which means you will never, ever be able to stand up again to it. I have to say there is another aspect of this, which I'm, I'm, I have to be careful to talk about it, because it's a fear, and I don't want anyone to suggest that I'm advocating it. But as this drags on into the, into the warmer months, I do think that among the, how shall I put it, less well-socialized areas of the country, uh, the authorities are going to have some problems uh, keeping people inside. Mm. I don't think that once it heats up a bit that this will become quite as easy as it has been up till now when it's been cool and, and people haven't got bored with the television yet. Mm. And I think that they, they may be underestimating. But again, if I were them, simply on simple grounds of practicability, I would be working very, very hard to get this out of the way by Easter. Uh, because much, much after that, it, it's going to be uh, the lightning of the evenings. It's already, I think, made a problem than it was before. But I, I, I think there is a risk that it will become very much harder to enforce. The, the middle classes, I think, will continue to obey it because that's what they are. Mm. But others are not. And I, I'm not advocating this in any way. I try to be law-abiding. I believe in the rule of law, even when the law is absurd. But if we reach a point where there, frankly, is no longer any proper process for the debate of laws uh, before they're imposed, then I'm not sure the rule of law can survive that either. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. The final thing I wanted to touch on is the question of conformism, particularly intellectual conformism, because it strikes me that, you know, if people were to temporarily conform to emergency measures, in some cases, there may be a good reason for that. But the intellectual conformism is quite chilling. And as you know, and others of us know, anyone who raises any questions whatsoever about the lockdown is just vilified beyond belief, completely demonized. And there are attempts to shame you into silence if you raise questions. But at a time like this, surely dissent and questioning and intellectual curiosity become even more important than they normally are. But they seem to be flagging very, very very badly right now. It's not just a moral duty. If, if, something, if you believe that something is wrong, it's a moral duty. In any case, there is no policy ever devised by man which cannot be improved by being debated and which cannot be improved by being exposed to opposition. I always love the, the, the old Queen Mother's uh, great constitutional theory when she was asked the form of government she'd like most. Like most. She said, a good old-fashioned Tory government with a strong Labour opposition. That's the ideal position <laughs> for the country. And there's a lot in what she says. But the strong opposition is a crucial part of that. Yeah. That you have to have an opposition which is actually capable of holding the government properly to account, of making fun of it, as, as Nye Bevan did during Suez. And, and that's a, a comparable a time when it was very difficult for both the Gates School and, and Bevan to oppose that immensely stupid action. And, and is also able forensically to dismantle it and to, to leave the country with some self-respect after it's over and it turns out to be a mistake. The fact that people, serious people, spoke against it was, was one thing which, which helped to save us as a society after that immense catastrophic defeat, which everybody except me appears now to have forgotten. There was also the great statement made by Richard Neville, the editor of the counterculture magazine Oz, which I used to buy in the 1960s so long ago, was, was I young. And he said a very clever thing. He said there is an inch of difference between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, but it is in that inch that we all live. And that inch disappeared a couple of weeks ago. Mm. One of the justifications for the existence of Jeremy Corbyn was that it did, in fact, break that awful period when the, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party were, were virtually indistinguishable. Not necessarily the kind of opposition that I would have wanted, but there it was. It, it was an opposition. But in fact, when it came to it, although he was still leader, uh, this is, I think, Corbyn's most considerable failure. 
he had nothing to lose, it seems to me, by being more robust in, in, in the face of this, and, and he didn't do it. And that he wasn't ever particularly high in my estimation, though his foreign policy interventions were generally right. Uh, but on this occasion, I think he, he and the whole Labour front bench failed. And in general, my view of the entire uh, membership of Parliament at the moment is that the next election, none of them should be re-elected because they've completely failed in their duty. Yeah. Uh, none of them should ever be seen again. We have a chance to throw them out. The whole lot of them should be thrown out and replaced because they simply are not fit for the, for the job to which they, they've been elected. Peter Hitchens, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.